Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technology will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Thomas Fry, and tonight I'm bringing you a solo interview. My co-host Trent Fowler and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com. If you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. So this was a fascinating interview with uh, Handel Jones. We we went into lots of different topics about how China is competing with the U.S. and how AI is actually becoming this foundational technology that's going to infiltrate everything that we're doing. And so in the future, you need to think about AI as being this tool in our toolbox, but it's going to be a very pervasive tool. AI is going to help us grow food. It'll, it'll help us uh, in our transportation. AI is going to help us in our education. It's going to help us um, in our healthcare. Uh, virtually every aspect of our life will have some AI component added to it to make things better. And uh, and that that I think is quite fascinating. And it, he goes into quite the comparison between the the U.S. and China. And at times it gets kind of scary, but then he also talks about how China is stubbing its toes on on some of the technologies. So, um, so this will be interesting to watch how this all unfolds. Tonight, we're joined by Handel Jones. Handel Jones has over 50 years of experience in the electronics industry and has led international business strategies for over 30 years. IBS supports government organizations and major corporations in the U.S., Europe, and China by doing analysis of emerging technologies, predicting market trends, and devising high-level strategies. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. I have with me today, Handel Jones, uh, who has written a book called When AI Rules the World. And this is quite a fascinating book, and we want to get into this and uh, uh, dive into a lot of the the technologies and where this is all going. So, let's start off with what prompted you to to write this book. Well, I've been interested in AI for many, many years, and um, to me, AI is not an extension, or it's not a replication of the human brain. It's really a capability that is complementary to the human brain. So my background originally was in mathematics. So again, the concept of uh, data and analytics of data was, was one of the key factors driving this. The other one was my strong interest in China. I wrote a book called China America back in 2008. It was published by McGraw-Hill. But before that, when I worked for Rockwell International in Dallas, Zhang Jiamin came into Dallas and my boss was out of town. So I presented to him what was going on in the telecommunications industry. And then we had a lunch, uh, Trammell Crow hosted it and um, he was sitting at her table, I was sitting in the back, but he called me up uh, to sit next to him, which kind of really messed up the protocol. But we talked quite a bit during lunch again and he invited me to come to China. And I thought, well, this is interesting because actually I was head of the international business groups at Rockwell. So China was one of my I had people working for me in China. But then the U.S. government said, no, no, you're not going. Because we were doing the B-1 bomber. We we're doing the space shuttle. And we, I was doing GPS. So, of course, when you, when you can't do something, then you kind of become more interested. So then I started reading about China. So I went to China in 2005 and was kind of shocked by the differences in terms of the nice hotel that I was staying at. But then around the hotel, it was really a mess and poverty and so on. But then I started kind of getting to know some of the people and um, they were quite different from what I expected. Basically warm, 
uh, enthusiastic, highly entrepreneurial, and of course, I got cheated many times. Uh, but in terms of my business, we actually have been doing business in Japan, we've been doing business in Europe. We have actually a pretty international presence in business. So then um, when I did the book Chan America, that actually got quite a bit of success. And then I did another book called How China Becomes Number One. And that was published in Mandarin. And it was actually on the bestseller list in nonfiction in China for a while because the central government asked provincial governors to read it. And of course, they were not going to read it. Um, so they gave it to their people to read. <laughs> but in terms of trying to understand China, it's like going to the Forbidden City. You go in one gate, you think you're inside. You go into another gate, you think you're inside. At the end of the day, you never get inside. But it's really interesting to understand how they operate and the difference in terms of how the US operates. And we are on effectively a collision course. And basically, I, I thought that would happen a while ago. Uh, but I think AI can be a key factor in terms of what we view as global dominance in a number of areas. So the predictability of, of ability to try and predict the future, especially when related to AI, is what drove me or initiated me to drive, drive the book. Yeah, so a lot of um, the way you explained it, that AI is this foundational technology that everything else gets built on, that, uh, that resonated very well with me. Um, so part of uh, the way I think about, and you talk a lot about digital twins in this book, um, a lot of the way I think about digital twins is the, the kind of the sensor industry and how this got started. Um, and this Dr. Janice Burzak was a vice president of Fairchild Semiconductor. In 2013, he held an event at Stanford called the Trillion Sensor Summit. And he invited all the sensor companies to come in and uh, and their their job was to try to uh, kind of determine a timeline of when we'll get to the first trillion sensors in the world. And uh, they decided that that would be somewhere around 2024. And that by 2036, we'll get to 100 trillion sensors in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that means is the sensors become very tiny, very ubiquitous, very easy to mass produce, very inexpensive. And then we start embedding sensors and everything. And that, that gave rise to the thinking about digital twins because we could start putting sensors all over our equipment. And whether that was a, a turbine in a power plant or a front-end loader or a cruise ship, uh, then we could monitor this equipment from a long ways away. Um, now, you you come at this from a little bit different perspective. Uh, so why don't you explain how you think about digital twins? Yeah, so... <clears throat> The human brain, of course, is very powerful, but we have limited communication capabilities. We also have volatile memory. But if you look at the smartphone today, the processing power for data is really pretty powerful. But by 2030, we're going to have a thousand times more processing power in the smartphone. So the amount of data, we call it a superphone at the time, the amount of data that can be processed, stored, is going to be dramatically greater than what we can have in the human brain. So this becomes, in effect, a partner. So this becomes a partner for storing data, accessing data, analyzing data, making decisions. The digital twin will not have emotion, but basically it's going to be something which is going to be which can allow the human brain to have significantly higher capabilities in terms of throughput performance that we have today. So analogy is the calculator. You know, when I was younger, I had to study arithmetic. I really didn't like it at all. I mean, I liked geometry, I liked algebra, and I liked all those calculus, but arithmetic I didn't like. But today you have a calculator. However, though, the brains in the calculator is what we have in the PC. And that was done by Intel. And of course, the PC today is powerful. And of course, we also now have 
have supercomputers and so on. So the evolution of capabilities out of the calculator has been pretty dramatic. We see the same thing occurring in terms of the chipset for smartphones. Uh, so the digital twin will become, as I said, a partner to the brain. And the communication through keyboards, through voice is too limited. We will need other forms of communications. Can it be telepathy, can it be images? So that's gonna change also the relationship between the human brain and the virtual digital twin. Okay, so part of what I was thinking as an extension to this is that we're, we're moving into the smart glasses era. And um, if we add AI to the glasses, then the, the glasses then can see everything we're seeing and hear everything we're hearing. Yeah. And then we start talking back and forth to this um, or thinking back and forth with this, this AI that um, will remember everything that we've seen and everything we've come into contact with and that we can then suddenly scroll back in our memory banks and find out what was on uh, you know the 35th page of this document I was reading and uh, and and recall recall it perfectly is that kind of the way you've been thinking about this as well yeah that's very that's that's an excellent interpretation of some of the concepts and again the images can give you so much more information the other thing about the virtual digital twin, of course, it can outlive you. And so basically, posterity is possible. But the negative with it, by the way, is that if the data going into the virtual digital twin is controlled by somebody else, then they can actually influence many of what things that you do. They can influence your mood by, by sending negative messages. They can make you enthusiastic. But there's also, there's also kind of a control uh, mechanism that can come in with it, which can, again, maybe complements the virtual reality, uh, which is another piece of the digital twin. Virtual reality, where you have, you know, basically physical objects in the virtual space where you don't need them in real space. Uh, and then you can have, you live in a virtual world. That's going to be the opium of the 2030s. Oh, yeah. These things tied together in terms of, I think your your augmented reality concept actually is really good. I mean, I think that's a very astute way of looking at, at, at some of these concepts. Yeah, so instead of having meth addicts, we're going to have VR addicts. Uh, exactly. Or, um, yeah, the so the people that get totally hooked on it... Um, See, I, I think what we're going through right now with the the metaverse and all the talk about that is is a really kind of a false start, and that um, most of what we have going on today is going to somehow get get trashed and rebuilt over the next few years, and uh, we'll get to the good stuff after that. Um, but as you say, we might be getting to too good a stuff that becomes totally addictive, and uh, then we lose perspective on the world. Yeah, and again, I think when you when you look at China, um, our assessment is that smart robots are going to be pre pretty much lim eliminate people from manufacturing. So when we look at companies like Hanhai, Foxconn, you know they make the smartphones, but now they're going to make cars. And you know I work with with some of the semiconductor companies. And they basically will have factories with no people in them. So we're going to have very large unemployment because of automation in the factory. Now you have the business of making robots, but that's going to be 10% or 5% or whatever you have, because they'll also be automated. And then you also have the service industries, you know, drivers. We're going to have autonomous driving, maybe not in the U.S. Uh, for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. But in China, the plan is 2035, fully autonomous driving, transportation of people and goods. We don't think they will make it countrywide. They'll have cities where they have it, but that's going to create a huge amount of unemployment also. So we now have to build a new employment base. And of course, if you can't find jobs for people, putting them into this virtual world can be a way of uh, having them be satisfied and not causing um, unrest. So you don't think we'll create the jobs fast enough to keep people employed then? 
Well, you know, when we look at, we have two concepts. One is the muscle power, which is basically electricity, and it's taken it 200 years to kind of to get to this point before it really started. And now we have a number of industries, and of course we have cities and so on. AI is happening in 20 years. So we had 200 years to prepare, now we have 20 years to prepare. And what we do see in China is the whole education system is being dramatically changed. And it's been changed in terms of preparing uh, people for the, new, for the new age, but they're graduating 10 million students a year, 50% are women. The unemployment rate in terms of 20, 16, 20 year olds is quite high. Of course, it's, more, it's higher in the uneducated than educated. In the US, I don't think we are really preparing very much for it. Corporations are basically doing some of their stuff and some of them are really, really good. But we're not, we're not, we're not seeing it as a new age, but China is. So the, um, so I've always been thinking about automation as we're automating tasks, tasks out of existence, not entire jobs. And so the, the jobs themselves get kind of reworked as we move through this, this time period. And, uh, while the, um, so there's, there's actually very few examples of entire jobs that have been automated out of existence, but, uh, that may change over the coming years. Uh, so you're, you're of the opinion that the entire jobs go away then, and, uh, and we have nothing left then. Well, entire jobs, no, I, so when you look at Foxconn Hanhai, when they build their factories, they build these dormitories and, you know, you heard about the suicides and the problems and so on. Right. Well, now the new factories, they have maybe 10% of the people they had before. So they okay. still have people. Um, when you go to the smart robots, maybe it'll be down to another 10% or 10%. So somebody has to decide what to do with the factory, what goes in, what comes out. And basically supply chains have to be managed. So no jobs will not go away completely but maybe 5% would oh, be needed. So, so far be, fewer people then. Yeah, but the yeah. people that you have 5% that will need to be trained in terms of um, higher level tasks than you have on the factory floor. So moving into uh, a VR world, a metaverse world, um, there will be things for people to do in that space as well. And uh, some of them will be guides or hosts or yeah. um, uh, kind of the bosses of people doing digital work inside that space. Yeah. Um, have you given thought to how that's going to evolve? You know, that's a really interesting idea because, you know, I live in Silicon Valley and there's a big shortage of software engineers. And, you know, a graduate from a good school that has a good grade they can start 150,000 a year dollars. Right. right. And um, so getting, getting, getting those skill sets is incredibly important. So what we see in the US is kind of, um, you know, basically there's no real plan to kind of motivate getting more of those people. I have two grandkids. One, my granddaughter is in, in, in Harvard right now. And she wants to go into politics. And my grandson has been accepted in Harvard, isn't in a gap year, uh, but he wants to go into um, think tanks. Okay. Not software, <laughs> not high tech. And uh, basically, uh, but so we, we, we have in the US basically some really smart software people, probably the best in the world, but they work for companies. And the goal is to, for that company to be successful. And that means there might be big gaps in terms of what the US needs. And military, of course, is one area where there is a big gap. So some of the things that um, that AI can't do is it doesn't feel what it's like to get sore muscles. It doesn't feel what it's like to, if you, if you run a marathon or um, you walk uphill for hours on end that you just get exhausted and tired and your whole body aches and, and hurts. And, uh, that, that physical learning, that physical component 
of um, of doing things is is something that AI doesn't um, uh, it doesn't emotionally attach to, um, and it doesn't attach to our emotions either, uh, not very well. Um, do you see that changing? You know, I listen quite a bit to a number of university professors trying to see how to get AI to be comparable or similar to the human brain. And I think that's the wrong way to look at AI. The brain is so complex. And my feeling is that we're really only using a small part of our brain as it is. So AI is really a complementary capability. No, AI, we don't, I don't think we'll have emotion. Can AI create art? No. I mean, it can do things that with different shapes. Can it do music? It'll do music, but it's not going to be the same as the Beethoven or what is that kind of music. It's complementary to the brain. So the key, I think the key, the smart people will use AI to make themselves smarter. And I think that's that's the phase we're going to be coming into maybe 2030, maybe 2035. We're still a long way away, by the way, from that phase. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm thinking that that's that's probably the best use of of AI. Um, Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. There's there's been a lot of a lot of warnings about AI uh, going off and being destructive and um, destroying things. Uh, kind of kind of the Terminator storyline. Um, are are you concerned about that at all? No, I mean I don't see AI dominating AI where you have kind of a super AI brain dominating other AI, AI, whatever it is. I mean, I think the military side, I think does have some scary parts to it. Uh, swarms of drones, for example, you know, I go snorkeling when I have a chance, maybe once a year, and you see these schools of fish and how they swim around and they don't touch each other. Uh, drones can't do that today, but if they can do that in the future, stopping them will become very difficult. So yeah. how AI becomes a force to be used to destroy humans, I think that's a very scary part of AI. Okay. I I think the most dangerous part of AI is putting it in the hands of devious people. Mm -hmm. um, because if you can blackmail 100 people in a day, suddenly you have the power to blackmail 100,000 people in a day. And uh, that's that's where the one of the true dangers there. Um, but we've we've always had a, a history of people using technology in the wrong way. Um, we can use it the right way. We can use it the wrong way, and somebody's always going to figure out how to do it wrong. So, <laughs> well, I completely agree with that, and I think that's the danger of the um, virtual digital twin that basically data coming to the virtual digital twin is controlled. That's the danger of virtual reality, uh, where the content or material coming in is controlled. And so I think that is that, yeah, that is a very major danger. Will it happen in the US? Who knows? Will it happen in other countries where you have dictators? Probably likely. Yeah, I want to give you a scenario and get your reaction to it. Um, I, I've been thinking through this idea of having a bodysuit that like a spandex bodysuit that would fit on our bodies and it would have a number of muscle stimulators on the sides of it uh, all throughout the bodysuit. So then if you, if you watch somebody uh, do an Olympic gymnastics routine, uh, the floor exercise where they do all the flips and twists and uh, pretty, pretty impressive floor routine, 
the AI then can reverse engineer that. And if you want to try to do it, then it will uh, activate the right muscle stimulators at the right time. And you're not going to be as good as an Olympic gymnast, but it'll give you uh, a head start. Uh, is that a realistic scenario? I don't know. I mean, that's the first I've really heard about that concept. It's interesting. <laughs> we, we do have the concept, though, of um, sensors on the body. And um, the amount of data that can be created, that can be generated from a person, maybe a hundred, a thousand times that of, a, of an automobile, maybe a million times. And the data that gets generated on your body can determine what you should eat, what, what, what kind of exercise you should have. And we think that can increase longevity 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And can also impact um, potentially increase longevity or brain power. So I think the concept that you have is really interesting, and I think it's going to come in for sure with AI. But with sensors, basically you talked about the you know the trillion sensors and so on, but the amount of data that the body can generate is huge, and again, preventative medicine can really be helped by use of AI. But it can determine your diet, can determine what you, what what nutrition you're missing and what you should eat and when you should eat. So it's a bit frightening, but given that option of living ten years longer with your brain power being intact, I think a lot of people would take it. Yeah. Um, so in your in your book, you do an impressive amount of research on the companies over in China, comparing them to the companies in you in the U.S. and um, and it actually kind of paints a, a grim picture on the U.S. side of the equation. Now, some of the things that have unfolded since the start of the Ukraine war um, have painted China in a little bit different light. Do, do you still, um, do you think that that's changed any of your uh, your predictions that you made? Well, I don't think the Ukraine war has changed the predictions so much. But I think the latest BIS initiatives that pretty much blocks or potentially blocks a wide range of semiconductors being supplied to China can have dramatic effect. To build AI ecosystem, you need semiconductors and you need advanced semiconductors. And um, so BIS on October 7th but all these restrictions on semiconductor industry of China. Part of it is manufacturing semiconductors in China, which is not a big deal in itself, because as long as China can get semiconductors from other sources, yeah, they can still build the digital world, the AI world. But the US is also blocking semiconductors being shipped into China. Initially, they're focusing on what they call supercomputers, but they also added AI and basically uh, the, the social uh, good, basically human rights. And then of course, they've also now blocked uh, US citizens or people with US green cards from helping the China semiconductor industry. So that actually, if it stays, will destroy the electronics industry in China. So we are now looking at what response will China have? But in terms of if that, if that is relaxed, no. I mean, China right now is the leader in 5G. They're working on 6G and potentially initial trials in 2028 and 2030 in deployment and billions of dollars per year going into it. You probably saw they've announced that they are working on a thousand kilometer per hour maglev train. That is really innovative. Right. I've, I've seen uh, some articles on that train and uh, that's pretty, pretty darn fast uh, going at, what is it? 600 to 700 miles an hour. I know. Yeah. I know. That, that's, that's not the tube transportation version either. No. Um, so, so that's, that's, that, that's not passengers though, right? That's just cargo. No, I think the plan in future will be passengers, initially be cargo. Okay. Yeah, no, basically, I think um, 
the air travel, you know, for long distances, but yeah, inside China, it's planned for people. Um, yeah, some of the G-forces, when you get up to speeds like that, uh, especially going around a corner, they have to be very, very gradual. <laughs> that you, otherwise, you get uh, uh, lose your ability to, <laughs> you lose your consciousness is what you do. <laughs> I know. But, you know, it's the speed of planes. And again, basically, it's like a plane on the ground. Yeah. With much, much higher air pressure. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. I had some conversations with John Nesbitt uh, when he was still alive, um, the author of Megatrends, and he's he's done several uh, books on China. One of the one of the stories he tells is um, uh, about this quote that they use that uh, they ask how how do you cross a stream, and the way you cross the stream is you feel the rocks beneath your feet. Um, and I always thought that that was such an interesting quote because it, you, you don't have uh, overarching policies that make all of the decisions for you. You um, you you decide on the fly, uh, and that's that's a much better way of uh, approaching some of the problems you're going to encounter. Uh, are are you familiar with that uh, that story that philosophy? Yeah. Basically, I think that was Dan who, who mentioned it. He talked about, you know, it doesn't matter if a cat has one eye or two eyes, as long as it catches mice. But that was one of his one of his sayings also, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And and so that seems to permeate a lot of their thinking over there that um, they don't have a 20, 20 year strategy that they hold hard and hard and fast that they make up the the decisions as they're going along well you know we we can look at successes and we can look at failures so if you look for example today they dominate the solar cell industry and they built the polysilicon but 10 years ago maybe they had 30 companies doing doing solar cells today maybe they have two or three uh, LED lighting, they dominate LED lighting. They had basically, again, 20, 30 companies, two or three left. And now they're doing electric vehicles. They claim, you know, 100 car, 100 companies. In reality, it's four or five that are real. So they do have a lot of failures. Um, so I think some of those failures, they basically got money from the government and they really didn't feel the rocks at all. They just decided, well, we're going to go into the water. <laughs> and, uh, so I think they have both both they have they're both extremes in terms right. of uh, what they do. So a lot of failures, but then if you fail and you've got government money, then you basically get more government money to try against something else. Yeah, in the U.S., we take the other approach where we plan things to death before we uh, uh, turn over the first shovel full of dirt to make something happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so so. What you allude to in, in your book is that um, most of these changes in China started uh, after the death of Mao. Um, and and can you articulate what all kinds of changes happened at that point? Well, yeah, I think under the previous leader, and I started going to China, I said fairly seriously in 2005, 2006, there was an opening up of markets and ability to have relationships in technology. <clears throat> During that time though, there was a lot of absconding or stealing of technology. But it allowed, <laughs> excuse me, a fairly significant industrial base to be built. And it encouraged entrepreneurs to kind of get into the high technology field. So smartphones was one of them. You could just buy chips off the shelf and you could make a smartphone. And so a company, a person, you know, with a little bit of money, you could make 10,000 smartphones, or not smartphones, uh, cellular phones, and you could sell them 
in a market and so on, and then maybe next year he's gone. So it created kind of um, an ability to have joint ventures. A number of US companies made good money. Automobile companies made good money. A lot of US companies or foreign companies lost money or they lost technology. So there was an opening up which really started probably around the 2005 timeframe. Because before that, there wasn't much going on in China. And then 2015, 10 years later, now you've got some fairly strong industries. You know, Huawei then was coming close to 100 billion in sales and leader in global 5G technology. And then from 2015 to now, another strong growth of momentum. So these are like waves. Uh, so they build on success and then you have some failures and then you basically try again, you build on success. So I think um, Hu Jintao actually was very, I mean, there were the claims a lot of corruption at the time, but I think he actually was the one to be given credit in addition to Deng in terms of really opening up China to outsiders. And now we're going into a different phase where they're closing. Okay. Um, now, as, as far as uh, you, in your book, you focus strictly on just China and the U.S., uh, I mean, there's other countries like India and, and Korea and Japan that um, uh, want also want to take the lead on all these things. And so the, the competition is is fierce on a lot of levels. Um, so uh, can you can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So we basically just did a big project for the um, Indian government on the um, industrialization of India. And so they want to get into something with manufacturing. We said, no, 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 you can do some of it, but India is a global leader in software. And India should become a global leader in AI. Will they do it? I don't know, but they have the talent, they have the population, they have the people, the education system, uh, but you need some, 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 some innovative, People, you know, what Steve Jobs did in the smartphone business, it's amazing. But right now, India is going 5G in terms of smartphones, but there's no real basis for this kind of innovation for global leadership. I've done, I spent a lot of time in Japan and I saw the, the rise of Japan and then the fall of Japan. And they became too cautious. And basically they stopped investing and so they also became too introverted. So Japan is a great place to visit, but the industrial segment is terribly weak. They were the leaders. They had the best smartphones in the world, but they didn't, they didn't merchandise them. They didn't market them. Right. Uh, the Japanese automobiles are going to be destroyed as electric vehicles come in by the combination of China the combination of South Korea, combination of Europe. It's very sad. Also, we've done quite a bit of work for the, in France. We've also, we, as I mentioned earlier, we do know Korea very well. I spend a lot of time in Korea. And when I go there, my favorite food is Sangeta. <laughs> I, I have a lot of favorite foods there as well, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's uh there's no shortage of good food places in Korea. Yeah. Um yeah, this is uh, so one one of the things that China has done is they've um I don't know, maybe you can clarify this a little bit for me, but uh they've put a ban on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Is is that a, a across the board ban or what is how does that stand? Well, they do have their own digital currency, and obviously Alipay and WeChat Pay. But the reason they put the ban on Bitcoin is because that was a way for Chinese entrepreneurs or whatever to move money out of China. And so it basically nothing to do with the gambling side of it because you know Macau is still fine and so on. But it's, it was a way to basically block the transfer of currency. So they were doing a lot of Bitcoin mining in, in, in China. Uh, and that has basically been stopped. But yeah, it's really kind of a way to stop what could be viewed as government non-sponsored money moving out of China. 
in in a lot of ways the cryptocurrency is um is like a foundational technology for lots of other things and um by making a band like that then they lose uh they lose a lot of talent they lose a lot of insight into how that that whole emerging industry is going to be evolving do you see that as a, a potential downfall for them to a certain extent but again they're pushing their own digital currency so i think they have their own version of bitcoin but where they're managing it themselves and they're trying to have hopefully some kind of assets behind it but again you know maybe they have one percent of the assets but i think i think the, the 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 other side of the coin as i said is they won't have their own control of everything and okay. it's data and they want to control data and they couldn't control data in bitcoin so so the control aspect is as first and foremost in their mind the way they approach industries then well there's a high level of entrepreneurship in china you go to a market and you see the stall selling the same thing and who wins is the one who's most aggressive and the number of times I've been cheated in China is amazing. Um, so there's a high level of entrepreneurship there. Uh, and I think the Star Exchange in Shanghai is an example of rewarding entrepreneurship. But at the end of the day, though, they do, the government, central government wants to control uh, things. And SOEs is a way to effectively control part of the industries. SOEs are in, inefficient, but again, they do provide the ability to manage certain industries where individuals or corporations might not be as effective as if you have a managed environment. So can you explain what an SOE is? Yeah, state-owned enterprise, and where okay. basically the government okay. decides on, yeah. Um, now, part part of the book you talk about the social credit system that China is coming up with, and um, uh, we've we've have our mastermind group that was tackled this whole idea of should we gamify citizenship uh, in the United States, and it it was uh, a, quite a lively discussion. Uh, see, we we're very good at punishing people for bad behavior, but we're not good at incentivizing people for good behavior. Um, and so we don't really have um, any good examples of what good, good behavior looks like, or if we were going to incentivize it, what would we incentivize? And so it, it opened up lots of debate around this, this whole issue of, is this good? Is this bad? Is this too intrusive? And so what are some of your thoughts on uh, the social credit system? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically very mixed. I mean, I think in the US, you know, you mentioned the, um, the um, not recognition of good. You do have money. I mean, money is one metric. So if you basically do things that you create generate money, then that could be viewed as success. And that's one metric. Uh, doing good deeds again is kind of very difficult to to measure those. So it really in China is really kind of trying to have a unified system uh, where basically um, you really are controlling the behavior of people in order to try and make them more productive. So one thing we're seeing right now in in China is a dramatic change in the education system. Um, in the U.S., especially California, public schools, they've gone away from testing, you know, basically SAT scores don't count. Uh, my grandson, by the way, got 1590 in SAT, and that really didn't help him much at university anymore. But in China, they basically are selecting students based on academic skills, and they put them in special classes. And when you're 15 or 16 years old, you go to school six and a half days a week. And the starting time, you leave home 7 o'clock, you get home 10, 10 11 o'clock at night. And it's basically training them to be highly knowledgeable, but also highly competitive. So you take exams and you have to do well in those exams. So when you graduate from university, not only do you have a lot of knowledge and skills, 
but now you're also a fighting machine in the um, in the in what I want to say academic or business world. Now in the US, we do that with athletes. Basically, athletes when they're very young, if they're going to this this incredible capability, they get special training, and then they get selected. You know, university selected for the draft and so on, and then of course they can make a lot of money. So China is using that kind of measure an approach to education where they measure everything. And of course, they're trying to do it now in the social environment. That's getting a lot of pushback, by the way. People just don't like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, basically, even the COVID testing is getting a lot of pushback. The argument okay. of China is in the US, a million lives have been lost. In China, it's 5,000 or 10,000, whatever it is. We don't always believe the numbers. But yeah, it's, it's a way to use data to help manage society, to make society more cohesive, more productive, and many ways more boring. Okay. <laughs> so more boring, huh? Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So if if you have a digital twin that you're wearing, couldn't you just go in and um, page through a book and then just go take the test and uh, get it out of the way without having to go through all the grueling classes? Well, that's an interesting idea, by the way, because um, AI will require the education system be changed. And um, do you use teachers or do you use AI that can measure feedback to determine how fast you're learning? And also what's the important thing to learn? So I think AI is gonna have an impact on society where what you what you what you learn today might not be relevant. What you maybe need to learn. So I think kids and people who are doing gaming, for example, those might be skills that could be very important with a digital twin. Right. And then because now you have to use your brain very fast, and in some cases you have to maybe use use your, your body. But those kinds of, of exercises could be the way of the future in terms of interfacing with digital twin. Right. Um, it it looked to me so Elon Musk talks uh, talks a lot about Neuralink and using Neuralink as as a way to actually um, uh, talk to the mind, and so that you're actually uh, information coming in back and forth uh, between your brain. I, I personally don't think people want to have um, uh, holes in the top of their head so that they can achieve that. If you could do that with a pair of smart glasses that and have your digital twin understanding everything that you're coming into contact with, it seems like a much more uh, palatable option for, for most people. Um, and so I, I don't know if you've considered those uh, kind of competing forces in uh, thinking about uh, digital twins or or not? <laughs> well, I think some of your thoughts, by the way, are very astute. I think you're obviously very smart. So I think, um, yeah, I don't, people don't want things put in, in, in their head or maybe even implanted. But Cialetti in Grenoble actually have been using stimuli to try and address diseases like Hodgkin's disease, uh, where you can actually change some of the brain um, uh, processes. And of course that now is similar going into the brain. Getting right. something out of the brain is gonna be very difficult because the brain constantly adapts. So if, it's, if it senses some part is being modified, you know, it can probably, probably will move to another part to do that, that function. But I think there has to be a way of communicating more effectively with the virtual with digital twin than, as you said, the voice and so on. So yeah, I think the the air glasses could be a very good way 
So I think you might be onto something significant because I think that's a much more palatable way of communicating than have, having something in your brain. In 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, who knows? But based on the weak signals in the brain today, it sounds pretty much impossible. Right, right. Um, well, we're, we're, we're coming up the learning curve uh, quickly on, on what we can and can't do with the brain, but uh, uh, I think we have a long ways to go still. Um, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion here tonight. Um, I, I, uh, I want to thank you for, for kind of taking us through this, uh, this discussion of, of your book here. And uh, I, I would encourage everybody to get a copy of this when AI rules the world. And this takes, takes you on a, a lot of interesting uh, kind of inside tours of companies and inside tours of, of the thinking that's happening in uh, both China and the U S and gives you a, a pretty good uh, layout of, of what's possible and what's not. And so I, I found this absolutely fascinating. And it sparked a lot of thinking in my mind. So uh, I, I think that that's very, very helpful. So how do, how do people get in touch with you? Well, I run a company called International Business Strategies. So that's one way. And also basically the book can be bought through Amazon. Uh, but I have a web page, and so there are different ways of getting hold of me. And so I think we, I'm on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in terms of my company, International Business Strategies, that's one one good way to have fairly easy access to me. Okay. All right. Well, very good. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us on the Futurati podcast here. And I wish you well as you blaze new trails in the future. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you, by the way. You're very smart. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>